as uh, Anil read uh, the, the passage of Scripture where we find ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 as we're in this series called Church at a Crossroads, uh, one word probably leapt out at you. That's part of the way that we study our Bible is we look for repeated words. And here's what I noticed. Here's a picture of my, my own Bible uh, that I noticed that the word call, calling or called is repeated uh, eight times. I just noticed that in the English translation. And then as I got to uh, studying and looking at uh, uh, the, the text in Greek, that, that the word condition in verse 20 is, is also, that's just the noun form of the verb uh, for calling. And so in seven verses, we have the word call being used seven times. But it's, it's interesting, Paul uses one word, but he's talking about it on two levels. There is, a, there is a higher calling, a primary calling, and then a secondary calling. And so the title for today's message in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 to 24, is a higher calling. Normally, when, when Paul uses the term calling, normally when the, the New Testament in general talks about calling, it talks about the call of Jesus to come and follow him. The call of Jesus to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. The call to leave everything behind and to follow him. But the church at Corinth had kind of skewed that a little bit. They maybe thought about the disciples leaving their nets behind and, and, and going and following him. They maybe looked at even Paul's previous testimony about how he left his whole life as a, really as a Pharisee, as a Jewish scholar and a religious leader in, in Judaism and how he left all of that behind and followed Jesus. Some of the Christians in Corinth started thinking about their marriage and they thought, maybe I should leave my spouse behind. Or they started thinking about sexuality and they thought, maybe I should stop being physically intimate with my spouse. Those were some things that the Pastor Chris was addressing uh, last week. And, and the church at Corinth was thinking, well, maybe I should leave my cultural identity behind. Maybe I should jettison circumcision and what it means to be Jewish. Or maybe I need to leave behind my, my cultural background as a Roman or as, a, as a, an African or as an Eastern European. And I, I need to become circumcised. I need to become Jewish. I need to leave something behind in order to follow Jesus. Or maybe I need to leave behind my socioeconomic status. I need to break free from whatever is holding me down in order to follow the call. But what Paul is trying to really get clear to the church at Corinth and what the Holy Spirit wants to make clear to us today is that the call to follow Jesus is the higher calling. It's the primary calling. It supersedes all other calls, but it's so vast and it's so immense in its implications for our lives that we can live out whatever other calling or condition we find ourselves in and still function faithfully as a follower of Jesus Christ. That the call to follow Jesus transcends every situation and every circumstance. The call to follow Jesus transcends whatever we are and wherever we are. And in such a way that we can function faithfully in following Jesus in every situation and circumstance. When Paul uses the word calling here in, in the verses that Anil read to us. He's talking about it in two levels, the call to follow Jesus and then the specific calling or really context or condition in which we are living. Up until this point, 
He's only been talking about the higher calling. Let's review how he's used this word so far in the book. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Jesus has called us to follow him, to be made holy by trusting in him. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, you were called into the fellowship of the Son. The, the love within the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are invited into that loving relationship, into that fellowship. Later on in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, but to those who are called, those who are Christians, those who have been called to follow Jesus, then he says, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter. Everyone got the same call. Jewish people got the same call. Non-Jewish people got the same call. People from every ethnicity, they, the, the call is the same. Those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then Paul says, for consider your calling. Remember when Christ saved you. Remember when you became a Christ follower, how he called you, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So up until this point, Paul has been reminding them of their calling, their primary calling, their higher calling. And then now as we get to chapter 7, we're, we're, we're being introduced to all of these aspects of our, what Paul would call our secondary calling. He uses the same word, but he means something different. So there's our primary calling, the calling to follow Jesus. But then there's the secondary calling in which we're living, married, widowed, single, slave, free, circumcised, uncircumcised. And the good news is, is that following Jesus, the primary calling is not, it, it, it's above and it's higher, but it also envelops every other situation or circumstance or context or condition that we find ourselves in. And loved ones, that's good news. It's good news because there's a lot that we do have to leave behind in following Jesus. We have to leave behind our sin. We have to repent from our sin. But there is also a lot that we can continue to hold on to. And even if we, even if we want to, like so many of the people in the church of Corinth, even if we want to change our situation... And if that's biblically permissible and not violating God's commands, then we are free to do so. But even if we are unable to change our situation or circumstance, even if our, con our condition remains fixed, that doesn't mean that we're any further away from God. Being married doesn't make you closer to God. Being single doesn't make you closer to God. Being circumcised certainly doesn't. Neither does being slave or, or, a free, or free. Whatever situation you find yourself in, don't believe the lie that you'll somehow be more fruitful or somehow be closer to God or more fulfilled in your relationship with God if you could just change something about your situation or your circumstance. So Paul here is, is really repeating the same thing over and over again. Notice how he, he really says it three times in seven verses. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. Then look down at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition to which he was called. Then look at verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. Three times. Remain where you were called. The, the, the primary calling of following Jesus, you can fulfill that calling by remaining in whatever secondary calling you find yourself as. He says it three times. Verse 17, verse 20, verse 24. And he's using these two illustrations, uh, circumcision and slavery. And this sort of acts like a hinge. 
primarily, the beginning of chapter 7 is, is directed towards married people. Singleness, widowhood does come up, but it's, it's primarily driven at the people who are married. And Paul's saying, stay married. Stay physically, I'm just repeating Chris's outline from last week. Stay married, stay physically intimate, stay following Jesus while you're married. You don't have to change your marital status. Then we have these these little illustrations with practical implications about circumcision and slavery. Then he speaks, which is where we're headed, Lord willing, next week at the end of chapter 7 to people who aren't married. And he's telling them, it's okay. It's okay to stay, it's okay to pursue marriage, but it's okay to stay unmarried, to stay single. The the common theme that flows all the way through chapter 7 is this desire to change something in our situation. And and the lie that I'll somehow be closer to God or more effective or more fruitful if I do. And so Paul is really, and Corinth was a place that was always changing. Change was a part of life in Corinth. There were two harbors on either side of the city. People were always coming and going. The, the economy was booming. People were always moving from one house to the, to the next house. People were moving from one spouse to the next spouse. And there was all of this change, all of this fluidity, really all of this real social chaos. And the Corinthians, you ever notice how Christians can look at what's happening in the world and they want to come, somehow embrace it? And so they just slap a Bible verse on it and they just kind of spiritualize it like that's part of being Christian? The Corinthian church was looking at the Corinthian lifestyle. They did this with sexuality. The body's for food. The, 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 the stomach's for food. The body's for sex. And they tried to slap, and God will destroy it all, so it doesn't matter. They tried, to, they tried to spiritualize sexual immorality. Now they're trying to spiritualize this sort of social instability, this sort of continual grasping for more and something different and something better. And they were saying, well, that's, that's what it means to be, to be a Christian, to leave everything behind. Paul's like, no, no, you don't have to leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. You leave your sin behind. But there's a lot that you can still hold on to. And to hammer home this point, again, he has in mind people who are married, people who are divorced, people who are widowed, people who are single. That's, that's who he's speaking to. But he, he does this, this little aside here where he talks about two other issues in the church, circumcision and slavery, to remind us about our higher calling and how that sets us apart and it should change the way that we think about every other circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. So our calling in Christ is higher than our, our ethnic or cultural identity. That, that's the first thing that Paul is trying to hammer home here. It's higher than our marital status, and we looked at that last week. We're going to look at it again next week. But what Paul is trying to get clear here right now by the power of the Holy Spirit is that when we think about our cultural and ethnic identity, that that is below our calling in Christ. Let's look at the text, verse 17. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. Uh, lead the life. There's a footnote in my Bible uh, there that the Greek word is a parapeteo. It, it means walk. That's the primary metaphor in the New Testament for what it means to live your life. Put one foot in front of the other. It's intentional and it's progressive. That's how we're supposed to live the Christian life. We're supposed to move from one place to the other. We're not supposed to stand still. We're supposed to walk. But we're supposed to walk, Paul says, in, 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 on the path that God has assigned to us. It's been assigned. This is the same word that's used to describe how the Holy Spirit gives each Christian a spiritual gift. 
We all don't get the same gift. Ebenezer might have a different gift from, 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 uh, from Daniel or, or, or that, might, that might differ from Brooke. We all have a different gift. But Paul also says that we all have a different calling, a different context, a different condition in which we are living. And it's been assigned to us. You know, like in school, you get an assignment. <laughs> and we don't like assignments, do we? But why do teachers give us assignments? They give us assignments because it's the assignment that helps us grow and know what we need to learn in order to pass the course. And God is the ultimate teacher, and he has given us, each of us, different assignments. Your assignment's different than my assignment. And, and all of your assignment is different from all the assignments over here. We all have a unique gift for the church, but we all have a unique context, a unique calling. It's the secondary calling through which we are to glorify God in our primary calling. So when he uses the word called in verse 17, this is one of the rare times in this passage where he uses it not to refer to the primary calling, but to the secondary calling. Then Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches. Uh, in in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul keeps repeating this phrase, all the churches. It's the same for all the churches. This is my rule for all the churches. He doesn't really say this in any other letter. He, I think he's just concerned about the church at Corinth. In chapter 4, verse 17, when he was talking about arrogance, how they were becoming puffed up, Paul said, you can't live like that. And Paul said, it's the same for all the churches. And then later in chapter 11, when he wants to talk about manhood and womanhood and how that was all getting confused in Corinth, Paul says, this is how it is, and it's the same for all the churches. And then when he talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 14, he, he says the same thing. This is how spiritual gifts should work in the church. And by the way, it's not just your church, it's all the churches. I think in Corinth, they, were think, they had this mindset that because they were so affluent, because they were so culturally savvy, because they were so influential, and because their worship service were so filled with prophecy and tongues and all these manifestations of the Spirit, they thought that they were better than all the other churches. And they thought, well, the rules that might apply in Galatia or in Rome or, or down in Antioch or Jerusalem, you know, it's, not, it's not, I mean, we're in Corinth here, okay? We're, we're, the rules are a little bit different. And Paul said, no. It's the same for all the churches. So then Paul launches into his first illustration or his first example. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not remove the marks of circumcision. So were any of you Jewish when you became a Christian? Don't seek to remove the signs of circumcision. This was actually, this is one of the earliest forms of cosmetic surgery that um, a Jewish man who wanted to climb the social ladder in a Roman-dominated world, in a Greek culture, didn't, didn't, were embarrassed by, by circumcision, by how that set them apart and made them different. And so there was a, there was a process, this is historically documented, of re at least reversing the signs that you had been circumcised. And Paul is using this very rare and very obscure situation to say that if you're Jewish when you became a Christian... Stay Jewish. You don't have to become un-Jewish in order to follow Jesus. That doesn't have to change. And then he flips it around. He says, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, non-Jewish? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, Paul here is just dealing with this in two verses, which he did really in an entire chapter in the book of Romans, an entire book in the book of Galatians. 
this whole false teaching that was coming among Jewish Christians that were telling non-Jewish Christians that in order to follow Jesus, you have to become Jewish. And you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Old Testament law. And so this is, this is why the, the, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem got together in Acts chapter 15 to resolve this very issue. Do you have to become Jewish if you want to become a Christian? And they emphatically answered, no. Because our, our higher calling supersedes our cultural or our ethnic identity. Paul, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Colossians 2.11 says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Paul says, if you're a Christian, whether you're Jewish or not, you've already been circumcised. Because Physical circumcision in Genesis and in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy was always only meant to point to, the physical was only ever meant to point to something spiritual, the circumcision of our heart, that something fundamentally needs to change about us. And Paul says in Colossians, that's already taken place. We've been circumcised in Christ. He fulfilled that for us. So that's why Paul can say in verse 19, almost word for word, what he says in Galatians 5, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Paul says, if you were Jewish when you became a Christian, you can stay Jewish. If you were not Jewish when you became a Christian, you can stay not Jewish. You don't have to become Jewish. That doesn't have to change about you. He says, circumcision doesn't count for anything, He says, but all that matters is following the commandments of God. But you're kind of like, hold on, isn't circumcision a commandment? Like, (laughs) Paul Paul just said, you don't have to be circumcised. All you got to do is follow the commands of God. But one of the commands of God is to be circumcised. It's Leviticus 12, verse 3. It's right there in black and white. So how do, we, how do we get around that? And what about the other 612 uh, commands in the Old Testament? Is what, what does Paul mean when he says we got to follow the commands of God? Well, we got to understand how we relate to God has changed because of Jesus. And because of how we relate to God has changed, how we relate to the law has changed too. Think about Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Did Jesus make the law sound easier or harder when he taught on that mountainside? When he talked about our mouths and what we say, easier or harder? When he talked about adultery, did he make the law more lenient or more strict? Jesus made made the law sound a lot more intense, a lot more strict. But right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. If anything, he made it more strict, not less. But he said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fully fulfilled all of the moral requirements of the law. All of the thou shall not do this, thou shall not. Jesus never broke a single command. 
Jesus asked repeatedly, which one of you accuses me of sin? Let's go to the book. You find a command that I've broken, and no one could. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, who knew the law inside out, couldn't find a single thing that they could accuse him of because he fulfilled everything in the law, morally speaking. He lived the life that you and I can't, could never live. He lived a perfect life, an obedient life, a life of worship. He fulfilled the moral law, but he did more than that. He fulfilled the ceremonial part of the law as well. Just like Colossians 2 said, he fulfilled circumcision. He was cut off. He was, he was wounded so that, so that the, the wound or the cutting of circumcision, which, which pointed to the need for a transformation in our heart, Jesus has fulfilled that. He is the Passover lamb that was slain. He is the high priest. He is the temple. He fulfilled the moral aspect of the law by living a perfect life, but he also fulfilled the ceremonial requirements of the law by dying on the cross. And so now, Jesus has fulfilled the law. So he's, I've come to fulfill the law. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the law ends at Christ. It points to Christ. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. It all pointed to him. And he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die, fulfilling the moral aspect of the law and the ceremonial aspect of the law so that we get righteousness. You don't get righteous by following the law because no one is righteous. No, not one. We get righteousness. How? Everyone who believes. So we don't relate to God by following his law and hoping he's pleased. We relate, to, we relate to God, not by following the law, but by looking to the cross and looking to our Savior and saying, he died for me. That should be me up there. And he has paid the price. He has circumcised my, my heart. He is the Passover lamb that died in my place. The law has been Fulfilled. So when Paul says the commandments of God, it's similar to what he says later in chapter 9, verse 21, where Paul says, I am, he's talking about reaching Jewish people and non-Jewish people being under the law, not under the law. And in chapter 9, verse 21, Paul says, I am under the law of Christ. It's a new law. Because Christ has fulfilled all of, the, all of the, the moral and ceremonial requirements of the law. Now, so again, do we just ignore the law? Do we just throw out the No, the, the law is how we know who God is and what God wants. And it's pretty clear that we can, we can look to certain aspects and say Jesus has fulfilled that, but these things matter to God. And so we can learn from the law because we can learn about God's moral character and how to please him and how to relate to him and how to love him because that's the new law, to love God and to love our neighbor. That's the new command that Christ has given to us, that we would love one another. So Paul is communicating here, if you're Jewish, just stay Jewish. Because following the Old Testament law is not what causes you to relate to God. And he says to the non-Jewish, he says, if you're not Jewish, just stay not Jewish. Our cultural and ethnic identity does not need to change when we become a follower of Jesus Christ. Loved ones, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, I mean, we're all there. Every tribe and nation, and language, and people. They're all there in the end. They're all expressed and recognized in, in the end. They should all be recognized and expressed 
right now. You, you, you shouldn't have to feel like you need to leave your culture behind or your ethnicity behind when you come through the doors of a Christian church. Whether you're from East Asia or South Asia, South America or North America, Eastern Europe or Western Europe, I'm sorry if I'm forgetting a location, wherever you're from, whatever your ethnic or cultural background is, you bring that to church because you're bringing it to heaven. So you bring it to church. I mean, I'm sitting here in church right now. I see some people in the worship, they're kind of going like this. I know you don't want to be going like this. I know you want to be going like this. So just go like this. Please. Why do we think that Western Europe wins? Why do we think that Western European has to be the default? It doesn't have to be. Just be yourself. You don't have to. Now, there are some things within certain cultures that are just flat out sinful. Those things need to be left behind. But there's a ton of things within culture that are just flat out neutral. And they need to be embraced and celebrated within the church family. Now, Remember, though, they're embraced and celebrated as our secondary calling, not our primary. Our world is trying to take the secondary and make it primary. Our world is trying to say that the thing that matters, that identifies you and defines who you are, is the color of skin and the amount of oppression that color means or the amount of power that that color means. And that is what defines you. And that is your identity. And that informs everything. And that is a lie. Your primary calling is your higher calling. You're a Christian first. And then whatever ethnicity or cultural background you have is your secondary calling. And the call to follow Jesus includes them all. So Paul uses this illustration of being Jewish or non-Jewish and says, listen, that doesn't, need to, that doesn't need to change. And then he repeats himself, and in verse 20 here, he says, he who is called, sorry, no, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That, con that word condition is the Greek word calling. It's the noun form for calling. Each one should remain in the call in which he was called called, remain in the secondary calling in which we were called in our primary calling. And again, the message here is that nothing that we do physically or nothing that we do situationally can change how we relate to God because Jesus has changed how we relate to God. So whether you're married or unmarried, Neither status, however it changed, will not make you closer to God. If you're Jewish or not Jewish, neither status, circumcised or not circumcised, that will not change how you relate to God because only Jesus has changed how we relate to God. So we keep our national, ethnic, cultural, linguistic identities. And we live, out, we live them out faithfully in the calling, the higher calling of following Jesus. Then he moves to his next illustration in verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Here's the second a calling. That our, our calling in Christ is higher than our social and economic status. Our social and economic status. Paul is referring to uh, uh, slaves here. He says he's, he uses the word bondservant. Again, there's a footnote in the ESV translation. The, the most straightforward translation of that word is slave. He's speaking to slaves. 
Uh, historians estimate that 50 to 60% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. So you can guess that probably half the church in Corinth are slaves. And so Paul is speaking uh, to them. He has all of these different situations uh, in mind. The married, the single, the slave, the Jewish, the non-Jewish, the, slave, uh, the, the people who own slaves or employ slaves. He has all of them. In mind, But notice how the language in this example is different. He says, if you're circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're not circumcised, stay uncircumcised. Now, what you would expect him to say is, if you're a slave, stay a slave. That's not what he says. He says this, this whole idea of following Jesus, it's rigid in some situations, but it's more flexible in others. Look, look, look at what he says. Verse, verse 21, were you a bondservant when you were called? He doesn't say stay a bondservant. He says do not be concerned about it. That's very different. He says don't let it define you. Don't, don't let that determine who you, who you are. He says don't be, and then he says, but if you can gain your freedom, if you can change the situation, Paul says by all means, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now we should probably stop here and just recognize that in North American church history, uh, some people have tried to take the Bible, specifically this passage, and try to use it to justify the North Atlantic slave trade and the uh, ongoing enslavement of, of people in, in North America. And those people were wrong to do that. In comparing the Greco-Roman world concept of slavery and the North Atlantic a slave trade, you're comparing apples and oranges. Listen, they're both fruit, okay? It's the same category, but it's, it's apples and oranges. It, it's, they're very, very different. When Paul is writing to Roman slaves, he's writing to someone who has become a slave that is not based off the lie of racial superiority, Slave owners were equal opportunity employers in the Greco-Roman world. You, you didn't, it didn't matter what a cultural, ethnic, or racial background you came from. It wasn't based on the, the, the lie of racial supremacy or racial superiority. The North Atlantic slave trade, on the other hand, was completely based on that. Apples and oranges. Different situation. The other is that because the North Atlantic slave trade was based off um, th this idea, this lie of racial superiority, it was therefore permanent. You're not going to change the color of your skin, so you're a slave forever. Where in the Greco-Roman world, on the Apple's side, uh, slavery was not permanent. You could buy yourself out. Uh, it was, it, it, like Paul said, if you could gain your freedom, then by all means, gain your freedom. You could become a slave in the, in the, in the, in the Apple's uh, situation, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, you could become a slave for a number of reasons. You could, on your own volition, decide because 50 or 60% of the population were slaves. And if you were dirt poor, you might look at a, a slave owner and think, well, there's shelter, there's consistent food and consistent work. Sign me up because it's not working on my own. And so people could just choose to sell themselves into slavery. Some people, they got so deep into debt that they had no other choice but to be sold into Slavery. Other people were prisoners of war and that sort of thing, but there were multiple reasons to find yourself in, uh, enslaved, but it, it was never permanent. You could buy your way out. The other thing that's really important to notice is that the, the mainstream of Greco-Roman slavery 
was not based on capturing people and, and, and moving them from one place to another and forcing them to engage in manual labor. The Greco-Roman concept was, it was most often volitional and, and it was temporary and it wasn't only manual labor. You, had, you got records of doctors and uh, teachers and the whole concept of stewardship is it's a steward, it's a slave, but they're responsible for all the master's property. The slaves were educated. It was in the best interest of slave owners in the Greco-Roman world to feed and clothe their slaves. It's also important to notice that, that in the mainstream of the Greco-Roman uh, um, concept of slavery... You, you didn't capture people. And in, in God's word, it's, ex, it's expressly stated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It says this. This is a passage we looked at uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks. It says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word enslavers refers to people who capture people for the purpose of selling them into slavery. That is the North Atlantic slave trade. And so people who try to use the Bible to try to prop up the North Atlantic slave trade were, were wrong. In fact, it was people rightly reading the Bible and rightly hearing what Paul is saying. Oh, if you could get free, get free. And then later on in verse 20, 23, he says, uh, don't become a bondservant of men. Don't sell yourself into slavery. Clearly, Paul prefers, he thinks slavery is not a good option. Apples and oranges are both fruit. Paul says it's not a good fruit to eat in general. And then you read Philemon, and you see Paul trying to get the, his friends set free. And it was people who were rightly reading the Bible, not just Paul's writing, but reading Genesis 1 and the fact that we're all made in the image of God. It was Christians rightly reading the Bible that didn't prop up the North Atlantic slave trade, but destroyed it. So we need, we need, to, we need to understand that there's, that there's a context here when we're coming to this, this passage when Paul is telling them, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. That, that's very different from the North Atlantic slave trade. But notice the theological reason that he gives in verse 22. He, his, his explanation is not cultural, it's theological. Look what he says in verse 22. He says, for the one who was called in the Lord as bondservants is a freed man in the Lord. He says, if you're a slave, just remember, deep down, you're free. And then he says... And if anyone was called, if anyone who was free when called at the end of verse 22 is a bondservant, those who are slaves need to remember that deep down, because of the gospel, because of the cross, you're free. And those who are free, they need to understand that deep down, because of the cross, they're slaves. Because both those metaphors are used in the New Testament. I mean, the word Lord means master. Everyone serves someone. We're all slaves. It's just a matter of are we a slave to a good master or a bad master? And yeah, sin is a really bad master. And anyone who commits a sin, Jesus said in John 8, is a slave to sin. But if you follow Jesus, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's the good master. Because in slavery to Christ, in becoming his bondservant, we are set free. That's incredible. And Paul says in verse 23, you were bought with a price. This is the same language he used in chapter 6, verse 20, to tell the Corinthians how they ought to live sexually and to pursue purity because they were 
bought with a price. Now, he says, people, as they're thinking about slavery and economics and social status, he says, remember that you were bought with a price. Therefore, don't go and sell yourself into slavery. I think Paul had a practical implication of here as he's advising against. Listen, you might think that there's shelter and food and comfort if you sell yourself into slavery over here. But Paul's saying, don't do that. I think he's saying that on a practical level. I also think he's saying that on a spiritual level as well. Don't, don't let the ways of man sl- enslave you. Make sure you are following Christ. He says you were bought with a price. Remember that price that was paid. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What do slaves do? Slaves serve. What did Jesus come to do? What did the Master come to do? This is our Master. Our Master came to do what slaves do. Our Master came to serve. And why? To give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is the word to use to describe the payment that's paid to set a slave free. So Jesus did what a slave does. He served to give his life as a ransom, as a payment to set us free. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, You were ransomed, same word. You were set free by a payment from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. That's slavery to sin. What ransomed us? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus has ransomed us with his blood. And then in the very end, Revelation 5, Jesus says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, here it is, you were ransomed. You paid the price to set people free. Ransom people for God, notice this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Nations don't change. Ethnicity doesn't change. Nationality doesn't change. Language doesn't change. But slavery changes. Because Christ has set us free free. Paul says, don't, because you've been set free, don't become bondservants of men. You see, here's the real problem when we think about primary calling and secondary calling. This was the problem in Corinth when it came to marriage, when it came to singleness, when it came to employment, when it came to uh, uh, um, uh, cultural and ethnic identity, is when we, when, when we expect our, our secondary calling to do for us what only our primary calling can do. Only our primary calling can truly give us a sense of identity and purpose and security and comfort and fulfillment and significance and worth and hope. If you try to find any of those things in a secondary calling, in the color of your skin, or in how much wealth you have, or how, mu- uh, how influential you are, or, or a certain person, or a certain relationship, or a certain idea. Uh, the second that you try to find any of these things in your secondary calling, loved ones, you're, you're enslaving yourself. You've been bought with a price. And your identity and purpose and security and comfort and fulfillment and significance and worth and hope have already been secured for you. You don't need to look for that anywhere else. I love how John MacArthur uh, summed this up. He says, only sin can keep us from obeying and serving the Lord. Circumstances can not. It's sin is the only thing that needs to change about us. And if we've repented in our sin and are trusting in Christ and his spirit dwells inside of us, then no matter what context, no matter what situation we face, loved ones, 
We can remain faithful. We can function faithfully because of our higher calling. And that higher calling can be lived out in any situation or circumstance. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, called to follow Jesus, called in the primary higher calling, he says, let there let him remain with God. With God. The Greek there is para, theos, beside God. Wherever you are, God is with you. Whatever hard situation you're facing at work or in your family or, or whatever opposition or racism you're facing because of the, the color of your skin, whatever challenge you're up against, loved ones, God is, he's para, he's beside you. You know, I, I started this kind of funny practice, you know, from working from home. Uh, I have a, a little desk in our, in our family room right in front of a window and I, I when I sit down to go to work, I, I light a candle. I'm not like mystical or anything like that. It's just, I don't know, I like wax. I like, I like the smell of a candle. I just like the flickering of the flame. My family kind of teases me uh, about it a little bit, but I, I just light a candle. I just, I, like, I like, just like having a candle on my desk. And this week as I was... Um, uh, Working on this message, had my candle going, and boy, it was cold this week, right? Wow, can I get an amen? Wow. Wow, like it was cold. Like one syllable is not enough. Cold. Like, wow. So, but it was sunny. Like some of those days, it was like deceptive, right? Like it was so bright and sunny outside. And there I was sitting at my desk, and I got my candle going, and I'm working, and I'm reading, and I got, I got, I got the lights on in, my, in, in, in the room I'm working. But then streaming through the window is just this, all these beams of sunlight. Like just this inescapable brightness of the sun. And I, I thought to myself, like, like, there it is right there. The candle is our secondary calling. And the fact that God will remain with us and we will remain beside him and with him, that is our higher calling. And it's not even, it's not even worthy of like a candle compared to the sun. But loved ones, imagine if we were to take our only, sor our only source of light and our only source of warmth and our only source of life came from a candle and we cut ourselves off from the sun. Imagine what would happen to us. And that's what happened. That's the essence of idolatry. But what God says is, no, 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 the candle's real. The pain you feel and your loneliness or the challenge that you're facing uh, at work or whatever you are going through right now, that the candle's real, but that candle pales in comparison to the sun, the glass of water to the ocean, the, the pebble before the mountain. It's real, it's there, but it's, it's not, the, the primary calling supersedes and envelops all of those things. Let's bow our heads and, and pray together. 
Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have commanded us from your word and reminded us from your word that when we remain, if we have to remain, if there's no other way to remain in the employment situation we're in or the family situation we're in, that you've promised to be with us and that in remaining, in staying how we are, that doesn't mean that we're just standing still, but that we are following you and we are walking in the calling or in the condition that you have called us to. And so, Father, I, I pray for those right now who are struggling in their marriages. I pray for those who are struggling in their singleness. I pray for those who are struggling with all of, the, all of the division and the evil along racial and ethnic lines and all of the tension and, and the identity politics, those who are heartbroken over those things or confused by those things. Lord, I, I pray for those who find themselves in, in a condition, in a circumstance in which, in which their own conscience as it relates to the vaccine has, has, has made them unemployed. This, this is where they find themselves. This is where many of us have found ourselves. But Lord, where we are is, is what you've assigned to us. And, and where we are right now, we are beside you. You are with us. We are to remain with you. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, in our current context, our current situation, our current circumstance, God. And I pray that if, if the things can change, I pray that we would be able to change them by your grace and give us the courage to do so. But while we wait on you, help us to be faithful in following our primary calling of serving you right here, right now, where you have us. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.